0: Good afternoon and welcome to Stories in Public Health. I'm your host Emily Dider and today I am interviewing Dr Caroline Ford who is a cancer researcher um, at the School of Women's and Children's Health at the University of New South Wales. Um, she did a PhD at UNSW and then she went overseas and did some postdoc work um, at the University of Toronto and Lund University in Sweden and she's also uh, one of the first superstars of STEM um, and hopefully she'll tell us a bit about what that means today. Welcome, thank you. joining us Caroline. Thank you for having me. Could you maybe start by talking us through some of the research that you're working on at the moment? You work in cancer?
1: Yeah absolutely. So um, I am lucky enough to lead the gynaecological cancer research group here at the Lower Cancer Research Centre. So what that means is that we are really interested in cancers of women and cancers that affect the um, reproductive tract. So primarily when we think of those types of cancers, it's cervical cancer, endometrial cancer and ovarian cancer, which is the big one that my group looks at. So we're really interested in these types of cancers in women and um, understanding why it is that people get them, how best we can detect them early, how and why they spread throughout the body, and then how we can develop targeted treatments for for those women.
0: And are you working on anything at the moment in terms of how is it going treatment-wise? Is that hopeful?
1: Yeah, it is hopeful. Um, I think I moved into the gynecological space about five or six years ago, having previously worked on breast cancer for most of my career, and I was pretty shocked when I first came to attend clinical meetings when we had conversations about the treatments we would give to the patients. So this whole era of personalized medicine and targeted therapy that we hear a lot of hype about, when I came to the Gynaecological Cancer Tumour Board meetings, as they're called, I was pretty um, shocked to see that there really weren't these options for this group of patients. That really treatment today looked very similar to what it probably looked 30 years ago. Oh, so right. patients yeah, were still getting surgery, chemotherapy and radiation, and, yeah. and we didn't have those advances that other cancer types have had. So that actually really inspired and motivated me because I thought, well, there's no reason, there's not particularly something special about ovarian cancer that makes it that much more difficult than other tumor types. I truly believe it's actually just a lack of effort and resources that have gone into it. There's just less fundraising, there's less awareness yeah. about it, there's less researchers working on it. So. Um, you know, I'm very optimistic that we can sort of make the same progress that has been made in other cancer types like breast cancer for the gynaecological cancers.
0: And why is there less sort of attention, do you think? Are the rates a lot lower or...? So
1: certainly in sort of raw numbers of people... Um, people being diagnosed with ovarian cancer, it's it's much less than breast cancer, but the survival rate is very low. So overall, five-year survival rate for ovarian cancer is only about 40%, whereas for breast cancer in Australia now, it's really high, it's well over 90, 95%. So there's a pretty stark difference there. But it also highlights something that that probably you've heard mentioned before, if you've got a cancer with a low survival rate, you have less survivors and people around advocate and talk about the issue. Yeah. So, so the incredible work that's been done in breast cancer is also because there's this huge amount of women that are survivors yeah. and that speak about it and that fundraise and that really fight for it, which is fantastic. But unfortunately, in some of the cancers that are um, have you know, less positive outcomes, there's less people around um, to advocate for it. Families are often still pretty traumatised and shocked by the experience, so so we just don't have that sort of community movement as much as other tumours. That's changing very much in Australia, which is really positive. Um, and yeah, specifically about our research, we're we're thrilled. Like we we think we've found some really exciting targets. These. Two receptors, which are called RAW1 and RAW2, so they're genes that are usually involved in the development of an embryo. But what we've shown over the last sort of four years is that these receptors that are normally turned off in adults are turned back on in ovarian cancer, and we've shown in the lab that if we target or if we silence those receptors we can absolutely stop ovarian cancer in its tracks so that's analogous to being able to stop the spread of the tumor in a patient which is really exciting so yeah we think think we're on a on a good um, you know, we've got a good idea here, and, and we can really um, develop that now to be thinking about moving towards phase one clinical trials, which is incredibly exciting.
0: Oh, that's really exciting! I'll have to come back and re-interview once the trial starts. Yes, please, <laughs> do. please do, And so, how did you? This is a two-part question. I've been told not to ask them, but I can't help it. Um, how did you first get interested in science in general? But then, and then what specifically led you into cancer research?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I get asked it a lot. Sort of, many people assume that you've either had, um, you know this inspiring science teacher, or you've yeah. um, had some sort of breakthrough, and I, and I really struggled to think, I think I was just a curious kid, I always loved science, I was interested in nature and outdoors, full of questions like a lot of kids are, yeah. um, and really enrolled in, in an undergraduate degree in science, you know, because it was something I was good at and I enjoyed. But, you know, I tell this quite frequently, I was a shocking student at undergrad. I mean, I enjoyed uni far too much. I spent far too much time at the uni bar and sitting on the library lawn drinking coffee. I failed first year chemistry and had to go to summer school, which was pretty horrifying. (laughs) Um, And it really wasn't until third year when I started to do science subjects that were much more associated with disease that my passion got sparked. So when I think about a kind of pivotal point I do think there were two courses I did here at UNSW actually one was bacteria and disease and one was viruses and disease yeah. so they were hardcore science but I could see the application of the science and I could understand disease processes and I could see just the incredible power of research to change outcomes for patients and that was really inspiring and so then I went on to do an honours project in virology so looking at viruses associated with cancer and that research project I undertook at the hospital, at Prince of Wales Hospital. So then kind of being immersed in that clinical setting made it so much more relevant and exciting for me.
0: I think that's hugely important for sort of people when they're coming through and studying because that was the same as me. I, My passion came when I started doing on the ground work and you can see the actual applications to people. So. Yeah. And I, th- I really liked what you shared about the first year of uni. I think that's something we don't talk about enough in academia like for young people because i think they you know we are still young people but when we look at you know professors or you know our lecturers and we think oh i could never do that and they don't realize that yeah I was the same my first year of university undergrad wasn't great either so I think it's really good to share that story and then when you got to your point of you know once your passion was ignited now look
1: at you you're doing amazing work. And I mean I think it's pretty normal not to be inspired by you know lecture theatres of a thousand students learning something you know even if you do happen to have a really inspiring teacher it's not a great format in general undergraduate it's until you get to those sort of specialised courses that you get a real relationship with with the researchers and the educators and the other students and it becomes much more interesting yeah that's yeah. true
0: and what made you change over from breast cancer
1: yeah so my so decision? my honors project then led i then did a phd in the same lab and that was again looking at viruses and cancer and i just got more and more interested in the cancer side so i was in a virology lab everyone else was working on fascinating projects but mostly on hep c and hiv yeah. and cmv and i was sort of the, the um, The rogue player that was looking at the association with cancer um and so i think at the end of my phd i started to go to a few international cancer conferences and just you know got absolutely interested in in what was going on outside that but very aware that i didn't have the basic training in really in sort of cell biology and cancer biology um that I, that I needed so I looked for a postdoc opportunity where I could learn some of that stuff. I was really keen to go overseas um, I got my PhD at the end of 2004 which was sort of the John Howard George Bush years. I'm, I'm a massive lefty um, so I was really keen to go somewhere maybe a bit more progressive yeah. <laughs> than, than, um, than Australia or the United States and, and that's sort of how I ended up at the University of Toronto um, working with a group over there yeah.
0: yeah. I do love Canada more and more now that they have Justin.
1: That's <laughs> was well ahead of the in going to Canada in 2005. So.
0: Um, well, that's amazing, and I really would like to come back in here once you start the clinical trials, so, um, so we'll tag that as a future interview. But now I'd really like to touch on the Superstars of STEM, so maybe you could talk about what that is um, and then what made you decide that that's something you'd like to do.
1: Yeah, so the Superstars of STEM is an initiative... Um, from Science and Technology Australia. So it's government funded and it really uh, aims to, I guess, do two things. Highlight a, a new generation um, or a new group of role models of what women in STEM look like. So, you know, as, as I'm sure you and your listeners are aware, that you know, there are issues around gender, gender equity in science. I think They're aware. <laughs> they hear me talk about it a lot. have <laughs> talked about that before. Um, so this is a really strong program trying to shift some of the perceptions so this idea that you can't be what you can't see I think is very powerful yeah absolutely. so you know if we ask a group of Australians to name a scientist they're going to struggle if we ask them to name a female scientist they they you know usually come up with Marie Curie eventually but they probably can't name an actual living female scientist, and they would struggle to name an Australian, yeah, I think. Absolutely. So this is really, um, this Superstars of STEM program has selected 30 women from across the country and across the discipline of STEM. So there's just such a cool, interesting group of women from a range of topics. So, you know, I'm, I'm doing gynecological cancers, there's an archeologist, there's a, an amazing woman that works on drones. There's just, cool. you know, like, oh yeah, it is, it is so cool. And so what they're doing is trying to um, give the 30 women some skills in media training and communication. Um, they're also mentoring us. So. Uh, particularly around our own professional career development, yeah. we're mentoring other people um, at a more junior stage than us, giving them some advice. Um, we're doing school visits, going to schools, talking oh, about that's careers that's great. In, I've been wanting to do that for ages. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> careers in STEM, and we're doing a lot of a lot of media and, and um, just general science communication to try to get out there and say this is what a scientist looks like, it's not necessarily you know, just David Attenborough, you, know, you can be a woman, you can have kids, you could come from a different background, all of those sorts of things that we know are so incredibly important. Yeah,
0: I think it's a really great program. So what first got you interested, um, I know you are a very passionate advocate before this of women in STEM, what made you so passionate to start with and then also, what was your thinking behind applying for this, knowing that you were going to be, you know, I talk about a lot that I get scared talking on the podcast, but I do it anyway. So what was your thinking about putting yourself out there as one of the superstars? Did you have any concerns or...
1: Yeah, look, there's a, a couple of things there. I mean, I think the gender equity question in science is something that every woman starts to notice as they progress in their careers. Yes, I would agree. <laughs> um, so I think, um, you know, there's these interesting stages that you go through of probably starting off with... Um, not believing it's an issue and, and um, thinking, oh, no, look, I've never had any impact by that. And, you know, I look around me in the undergrad or the PhDs, there's plenty of women. So I think that's actually the ignorance stage. <laughs> <And> <laughs> that's then, <laughs> so true. I've been through that stage. Yep, and I think we all go through it. Um, and then I think there's this awareness stage where you suddenly start to notice and you think, wow, that's interesting. Um, Then it leads to anger, I think, in a lot of people. It gets people really fired up and and the sort of injustice of it can be very motivating. Um, And I think if that works well, it can lead to advocacy, and so then you actually start doing something about it. So rather than just getting angry or having a whinge, you go, okay, this is the situation but there's things that can be done. And so that's definitely the pathway I went through and I thought, okay. I've been privileged to be part of some amazing mentoring programs. I was I took part in um, Academic Women in Leadership program, which is something that's female-directed that UNSW runs, oh, cool. incredibly useful, but a really limited amount of women that can do it every year. It's highly selective. So that sort of pushed me into getting involved um, in Women in Research Network. I chaired that for a while. We tried to sort of expand um, events and and ways to help women across the university sector and get them engaged with each other and networking and having support and careers development. And then I sort of moved on to more um, official university committees, so the, the Medicine Equity Diversity Inclusion Committee, the University of New South Wales is taking part in the Sage Athena Swan pilots. so yeah. I, I sit on that committee and there's a lot of, a lot of really positive movements we can make there and yeah maybe for
0: people that don't know what the athena swan uh, movement is it might be good yeah
1: so um so the athena swan uh, program comes out of the uk where it's been running for sort of over 10 years i believe and australia is now undergoing a pilot program but i understand i think more than 85 percent of all higher higher education Institutes and MRIs in Australia have signed up to the pilot. So oh, that's it's not really a that's Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, what it is 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 it is monitoring. Um, so it's really collecting data on gender distribution of you know of the women at different professional levels. You know how many female professors you have in biomedical engineering, that type of things, but also the policies you have around parental leave, uh, flexible work, all these sorts of things. Um, across the diversity spectrum, putting all that together, and then coming up with a four-year action plan of things you are going to do to improve it. And then it actually gets peer-reviewed, and then there's a medal system, so the first medal you apply for is, is bronze, and that sort of means that you're, you've got some, some good ideas yeah. and some targets <laughs> and it's realistic, and then you can apply again, and eventually you can get to gold status. What's interesting in the UK is it was linked to uh, medical research funding after a number of years. Oh, so, I didn't know so that. The universities in the UK could not apply for major funds like NHMRC here in Australia unless they had this sort of at least bronze award so it so showed it's us putting putting it in people's minds at least exactly so you know that may happen in australia in the future which is why i think so many people have signed up early but it's a really positive step i think and um, and it is changing things in, across the sector in australia which is
0: fantastic. Yeah, and so my second part of that question was your thinking behind actually going forward to
1: become a ah, superstar yeah and yeah why and well, or it, yeah <laughs> so it's it's interesting i i think and i you know i really honest about that. I saw the announcement, I thought, oh, what a fantastic idea. I would love to do that. But then I immediately thought, oh, superstars of STEM. Oh, I'm not a superstar. Like, no, that's not, you know, that's not for me. I'm not good enough. Um, So I immediately dismissed it. And this was actually while I was on maternity leave. So, you know, I I was sort of in another world of of looking after a, a small baby. Um, and it wasn't at front of mind. But then I started getting emails from friends and colleagues forwarding on the announcement saying, hey, you, you know, you, this seems to suit you, you should do this. And so it was probably on the sort of fourth email that I thought, oh, okay, maybe, maybe I should do that. So it was absolutely the push from the community that got me to apply. Um, and so it was an application process and, and they had uh, almost 400 people apply from across Australia. And so I, you know, I chucked in my application and, um, and sort of didn't think too much about it. And then I was actually in, in Sweden with my, with my family, introducing our grandchildren to their, to their Swedish grandparents. And I checked my work email and, and it said I'd been shortlisted and that I had to make a, a video, that they wanted a, um, a, a one-minute video and they needed it within a week. Of me explaining my science you know in the context of my work and I was in the, like backwoods of Sweden. <laughs> <Always there. laughs> and I, was so, I was so excited but I was like how am I gonna do this? So I did have this hilarious adventure going off um, you know into the Swedish woods with my iPhone and trying to balance it on a tree trunk. <laughs> I got poison ivy all over my legs oh, as I was no. like clambering through in my sandals um, and I made this you know I think honest uh, video where I talked about the fact that science had led me to f- marrying a Swede, having two half Swedish, half Aussie kids. It was yeah. because my 2nd postdoc was in was in Lund and that you know science is a pretty incredible career that you get to travel the world and meet yeah. all these exciting people and that it's very unexpected and not you know not what I would have anticipated. Um, so yeah I think they liked it and then and then I was selected as one of the 30. So yeah absolutely um didn't didn't think of applying, didn't think of myself as a superstar, but getting that award gave me such incredible confidence and I found out just as I was coming to work, back to work after maternity leave and that was so powerful, yeah.
0: That's fantastic, I have so many questions but um, I'll try and just remember them. So something I'm, I think that leads on really well to something that I have mentioned to you before the podcast is that I got a phone call from um, a close friend this morning who is an unbelievable epidemiologist. You know who you are. Um, basically, having sort of a crisis of having to do something at work that she thought was very difficult that she couldn't do. Um, she's absolutely can. She's amazing. I can't highlight that enough. And so I guess something I wanted to touch on was. I hear this from all my friends all the time, and myself, and as you were saying, when you applied for Superstars of STEM, you just, this kind of imposter syndrome, I just was wondering your thoughts on that, and how do we overcome it, because it just, I talk about it with my friends all the time, and I think we all do it.
1: Yeah, absolutely, um, and what was really powerful for me, actually, so when I found out, when they announced that the, the final 30 women for the Superstars of STEM, they sent us all uh, the website before it went live, and it had photos and profiles of all of us, and I read the profiles of the other woman and it was so inspiring but it was also terrifying I was like oh my goodness you know here's the chief scientist at the Bureau of Meteorology you know here's this amazing archaeologist working in Cairo doing this work I thought oh you know it was it was fantastic but I didn't think oh you know oh I just scraped in you know like I must be the you know B grade pick well, no but this is what was so interesting so then once we started um, as a group, the 30 women, we've got a, a channel on Slack, which is like a oh, messenger yeah, Slack, service. Yeah. yeah, so we have this absolutely brilliant Slack group, and. I can't remember who said it first, but someone wrote a comment along these lines, like, oh my goodness, I can't believe how amazing you all are, you uh, you know, I read your profiles and I'm so intimidated. And it just opened the floodgates and every single one of these women, including the chief scientist of the Bureau of Meteorology, (laughs) including, you know, deans of medicine, um, said the same thing. They were like, oh, I felt the same way. I didn't want to apply. I didn't know what to do. I was a bit embarrassed by the title. You know, I can't believe I'm in there. And so the fact that all these other people felt the same way I thought was incredibly interesting. Um, A bit disappointing I think that you've got these accomplished women that aren't taking credit and aren't being proud of their achievements Um, and actually so it's something we as superstars have been thinking about writing a bit of an article about to say look we're being held up as this amazing example and even we have struggled with this. And that's the whole point right of this program that we want to change what you think a successful scientist or researcher looks like, but it doesn't have to just necessarily be the um, NHMRC, CDF fellow, you know, top, top, top person, that there's this incredible wealth of um, knowledge and and brilliant people in the Australian medical research sector that deserve to be highlighted and that should be proud of what they're doing. That's fantastic. And I love that you all felt like that. I don't love that you felt like it but I love that you
0: were honest enough to share it with each other with us but also I think that we you know just telling people like us that that we could sort of look up to other people and think okay but they were scared but they did it anyway yeah um, so really leading by example and I think i'm so thrilled i like, it
1: is one of the best thing and and seriously this group of 30 women they are incredible that's the thing like we've, yeah. i've had the chance to get to know them over the last five incredible. or six months they are kick-ass and it is now just this sisterhood of support it is so wonderful like whenever anyone needs anything or is having a bit of a crisis of confidence you know they've got this huge group of women that back them immediately i really think i don't know if it's because we're the first in this group but there's been a, a really strong connection really fast wow. and, uh, that's awesome i want to meet them yeah, yeah. <laughs> she's a grown lady that sounds amazing uh, yes <laughs> yep she's pretty fantastic yeah
0: uh so i have two other questions um sort of related um the first is as sort of um, young women or just people in research what can we do you know about these issues, is things that I should be doing, get involved on campus, or you know, promoting it through the podcast. What can people do as individuals? Do you think that would be helpful?
1: About imposter syndrome,
0: or about, uh, about imposter syndrome, but I guess more
1: generally about the the gen- um the gender equity gender- issue. Well, look, I think um I think get involved, absolutely. I'm a I'm a strong advocate for advocacy, so yeah. actually do something about it. Um, speak to people. Don't you know? Don't be afraid. You have. Power, and you have something to say. So, um, if you see something that you isn't, don't think is appropriate, or you think that there's some really good ideas that you hear from colleagues working at other institutions, suggest them to your head of school, suggest them to your institute director. I mean, people are usually quite responsive and and receptive to these things. It is just that, unfortunately, in our um, in most of these places, the people in power are in a very privileged. are very privileged themselves, and, and you know privilege then blinds you to yeah. the, to what the reality is. So if you are a young woman embarking on a science or medical career, I think speak up about it. Talk about things. I'm very open about the fact that I have two young children, that I have issues with childcare, that I have to leave work at five o'clock to go and pick them up. I don't hide that. I think people in the past gave women advice that they should you know sort of power on and and not acknowledge this fact I, i completely disagree i think be really open about it talk about it make it acceptable for both men and women to take a really positive strong role in looking after their family or caring for family members or just going to the gym and being healthy and you know whatever their interest is going and walking the dog like actually having a balanced life is the best thing you can do to actually be effective at your job and not just strung out
0: <laughs> that was actually my next question <laughs> yeah,
1: I kind of, it question.
0: was about work-life balance because that honestly is another one of the questions that I get asked all the time which is about that work-life balance and it's really good to hear you say that because I think sometimes when I talk to more senior people can't necessarily ask them that because they don't have a work-life balance so to see someone who is you know at the top of a field who actually is advocating for work-life balance yeah
1: i don't know if i was just too strongly influenced by my time so i lived in sweden for almost four years and those people have it figured out in regards really? to work-life balance. <laughs> i mean they do brilliant research they're they're a great community and society but they all take five six weeks off in summer and go sailing they mm. have know lots of sort of social events with colleagues there it's it's just a really different way of viewing the whole thing and it comes down to you know working smart rather than working you know long hours it's not the hours you put in it's just being really really effective and anyone that that does have young children will know that you know your time is limited and you just get on with it you know that if anything is if your career is time away from your children, then you want it to be really meaningful and really useful. So you just don't have time to, to stuff around. And that can be pretty frantic, but if it means that you can get things done and then go home and have another side to your life, I think that's, um, that's the way it works. And I do think our culture is, is shifting to understand that a little bit more. Like your point about perhaps more senior academics not um, promoting that you know, definitely resonates with me, but I'm hoping that I can be a bit of a role model of a different way of doing it and maybe be a overall happier scientist. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. <laughs>
0: that's what I really like about you. I think you really do walk the walk, like you lead by example of the things that you believe in. I really respect that. I hope so. Uh, so are there any big other messages that I haven't covered that you'd like to get out to people in um, health and medical research? Just
1: that it's an incredible career, you know. Like, I think we're just so lucky and privileged to be working in this space. where We're doing research that has an impact on society. You know, we're in this weird you know, time period in this kind of post-truth world and all this rubbish that's going on at the moment, like I, you know, the thing I push people for is to get out there, communicate your science, be an advocate, be vocal, get in the media, you know, we actually know what we're talking about, so, you know, beat down that imposter syndrome whenever it comes up, be be proud of what you know, get out there and, and speak on it and, you know, make, make society a a
0: better place oh that's excellent and I always finish up with and I keep forgetting to um, prompt people before we begin but I like to finish with um, your favorite book or something you've read or
1: seen that has inspired you or changed the way you've thought about the world oh that's a really interesting question um I I don't think I could pinpoint one but for me um I guess having A cultural side to my life is really important so you know my favorite thing to do on a day off is actually go to the MCA go to a exhibition so to go and look at visual art and see something um, that inspires me in that way so it's probably not a single piece but certainly either going and seeing live music um, or going to an art gallery is the thing that really shifts me out of my science brain but actually inspires me and gets me to think in a different way about science yeah, so I would, yeah that's
0: excellent advice and I've heard that from a few people actually it's a theme that we need to be able to switch off yeah excellent yeah. that's what books do for me that's why I asked that uh, <laughs> yeah. um, excellent well thank you so much for taking the time I really appreciate it and hopefully we'll get to talk to you soon um, about um, your further research absolutely um, and thank you everyone for listening we'll talk to you next time on Stories in Public Health.